this may be our final segment on hunger. I'm not quite sure. I want to investigate a little more if if there's anything left unsaid. Uh, but this truly is, I think, kind of the period at the end of the sentence for what we've been studying. So just as a very, very quick review, the first time we took a swing at this, we talked about blood sugar levels because that's a big theory in hunger. If blood sugar is unstable, that creates you know different forms of hunger, different perceptions of hunger. And I think through the study we looked at, that bore out to be true. If you remember the two big ways of categorizing hunger, when your stomach goes through its final contractions, when you finish digesting as much food as needs to be digested, uh, it's not just this little kind of trickle that, that finally finishes through the pyloric sphincter into the uh, small intestine, but there are some massively strong contractions that drive the rest of those contents out of the stomach very similar to when you vomit and the, the top end is, uh, is also, let me see. make sure, hang on a second, guys, got to mute somebody. Um, so, you know, if, if your emetic center in your brain is triggered and you have a vomiting reflex, you know, the cardiac sphincter in your upper stomach, between your stomach and esophagus will open up and you know how violent that is, right? Like that's just, you can't control that vomiting. It's just, just unbelievably strong and forceful. Well, that exact same thing is happening to empty your stomach contents when you are completely finished with, with digestion. Uh, and, and so that gives you that first wave of hunger, or at least a sensation of being mechanically empty. And that's a, that's a significant point in the literature regarding hunger, because at that point, uh, a lot of people go eat, you know, you just literally emptied your stomach contents, your blood sugar is still high and increasing because your small intestine is still doing its thing. The stomach contents were just completely eliminated and yet we're then pouring food on top of food, which can, um, you know, create a positive energy balance. So, so that's the first place to recognize almost through a biofeedback mechanism that, you know, yes, my stomach's empty, but I really don't feel hungry. I don't feel hypoglycemic, don't feel weak by any stretch. Uh, but then to be very, very in tune with those changes in blood sugar, that first study we looked at, uh, did describe how with training, even children were better than adults at recognizing true blood sugar levels with great accuracy and could then objectively name that hunger, be more cognitive of it and manage it better. Uh, and so again, with 90% with accuracy, even children were able to say, yeah, I'm, you know, I kind of felt like I was hungry, but then I, I, I thought through the process, you know, I, I kind of internally connected with my, what I think my internal blood sugar levels are, that interoceptive awareness, and, and I'm not hungry. I guess I decided I'm not hungry. You can make that decision with, with some internal awareness and some logic, and that's a big part of it. So the second study we looked at just last week was more of a hormonal part of hunger, and uh, there were some conclusions made that I'm going to revisit today. I may, I may kind of hold off on those because these two weeks, last week and this week, go hand in hand. They looked at some of the th same things, but just a little bit differently. Uh, it, it, one thing I'll mention, our conclusion last time, was that it was really more important to consider fullness, that that very first wave of hunger to decide how full am I actually from this meal? You know, it's almost that push away from the table effect. People who could monitor that and control that had a much better uh, success rate at keeping weight off. In the study we looked at last year, or I'm sorry, last week, they went through a retrospective analysis of the year. They had their intervention. Then at the end of the year, they noted that uh, a substantial amount of those subjects had regained a decent amount of weight back. And that's part of the contrast I'm going to spend talking about this week, uh, because those subjects did not note much hunger. 
throughout the entire year with that retrospective analysis, they said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I gained that weight back. I can't really say I was hungry. I never, I've even had clients tell me that guys I've, I've had clients say, yeah, I'm 50 pounds, 75 pounds, hundred pounds overweight. And I don't even know what it's like to be hungry because I never let myself get hungry. I just keep eating. And, and the same thing happened with these subjects with, through weight regain. They did not correlate their regain back to hunger at all, yet they, they regained weight. So this week, they conducted a study. The, the study I'm going to look at did, did a different, did, looked at it a different way. They kept people on a controlled diet for a full year. And then they did some analysis that I think is different. And they had some different conclusions, but, but kind of parallel. So let's, uh, let's dive in. Uh, investigation of the long-term sustainability of changes in appetite after weight loss. Uh, pretty recent study, Journal of Obesity, was also published in Nature, which is one of the biggest science journals. So, so pretty serious study. This is not something you know too peripheral that I just conjured up to, to look at. This is a, a major seminal study. They did cite a lot of the dominant literature when it comes to some of the, the hormonal changes and different theories in appetite and, and weight regain. Um, but let me let me read this real quick uh, so, so you know kind of what their objective was. Uh, Diet-induced weight loss leads to a compensatory increase in appetite and changes in the plasma concentration of appetite-regulating hormones. Uh, whether these changes are transient or sustained remains unclear. This study aimed to assess if changes in the subjective and objective appetite markers observed with weight loss after one or are sustained after one year. So similar to last week, they were doing survey analysis. They were asking a lot of questions, but they were also taking blood marker checks, baseline of things like ghrelin, glucagon-like peptide, um, you know, even insulin this time, I, I, I said last week, I wasn't sure why they didn't check that maybe because it's such a perfectly opposite correlate to glucagon, but, um, you know, same thing with the, the, uh, peptide YY and the CCK, the longer, you know, parts of, of, uh, hormonal regulation through the, the large intestine and the distal small intestine. But again, they wanted to subjectively analyze people's perception of hunger, this time, though, with a very controlled diet. And, and as they said here, this is, what's, this is what, what's interesting, I think, to bring up to you guys as clients and coaches. In the research, people who do metabolic science research for a living, they understand that it's a given that there always seems to be, as said here, a compensatory increase in appetite after weight loss. So it, it seems to be a mystery to a lot of people. Why is recidivism and weight loss so high? Why do fewer than about 10% of people ever achieve sustained weight loss? And I think for those of us who have done macronutrient-based tracking and coaching, those of us who have combined that with a really long-term intervention approach with, with a lot of uh, support and, and, and coaching, deep coaching relationships. And especially, you know, I, I see a couple of people on this call who have lost a substantial amount of weight and kept it off. Whenever you see those dire statistics that so few people keep it off, I, I almost wonder like if, if that is going to turn, if, if the kind of intervention we see with more of an education-based nutrition which is truly just becoming mainstream. You guys connected to us and in the weight loss industry that's tied heavily to physique and performance sport. You guys have known about and you guys have been tracking macros and looking at nutrition objectively for years. The mainstream population is just getting there. And I truly think we're going to see that that's probably one of the things that stems the tide of obesity, because there is just that anchoring to the most objective way you can think about and consider your own nutrition. And that's just the doorway. We, we did a nutrition coaching global mastermind this month, uh, Brian St. Pierre, precision nutrition, Dr. Souders and I, and that's one of the things we talked about. Everybody agreed, even Brian, who as a registered dietitian and the nutrition director for Precision Nutrition, 
they like a kid's glove approach to this kind of stuff. They, they don't push like everybody must track macros. Everybody must have this hyper objective methodology, quite the opposite. But he freely admitted without any questioning or pressure for me that, yeah, macro tracking at some point that probably has to be done. You may not start with that. He even, he even said, you know, my 75-year-old grandmother may never do that, but you can even use proxies for it. And that's where you'll do things like a serving size is like your palm for protein, maybe your fist for carbohydrates. But he said at some level, there has to be objectivity there. So I like the fact that this study used that for an entire year. And, and they did it in a couple of different ways. They even threw their maintenance phase, once they got past the 12 week intervention, they even had people wear uh, things like Fitbits and, and other wearables and devices to measure their calorie output because they wanted, they wanted everything accounted for and correlated with the study. They didn't want to have any outlier variables that, that could have changed their analysis. So I think it was really, really good, super objective. And, and I'll show you what, uh, what they were looking at here. So 100 subjects, 45 men, 55 women. Uh, they ended up, I think, with about 94. You know, a few people washed out. They just, they just couldn't take the intervention part. The BMI was 37 plus or minus four uh, kilograms per meter squared. That's how BMI is conducted. So a BMI of 37, as I said last week, uh, is pretty high. 40 crosses the line from obese to morbidly obese. So men and women at this level are probably 60 to 80 pounds overweight. Uh, average age, 43, plus or minus 10 years. The actual intervention was eight weeks on a very low calorie diet. And there, there are some different ways to define that. But for their purposes, it was 550 calories for women, 660 for men. That's, uh, yeah, I see Stacy's eyes growing this big. That's, that's what medically is considered a very low calorie diet. That's, you know, I've always heard 500 calories. If you go to the Mayo Clinic, you know, for kind of an emergency type surgery, exploratory surgery, and you need a weight loss to make that, that surgery more successful or, or safer, you know, immediately 500 calorie diet. Typically also with food, which they use here, they used diet type products. So this intervention was again, more objective. Here's the food and the supplements you're going to consume. This is how you're going to get your calories for uh, eight weeks. And then they did, oh, by the way, and then you can see the macro breakdown, pretty standard dietetic, uh, lower fats, moderate carbs, pretty solid protein level. Um, but again, you know, on a very low calorie diet, they're probably still using the RDA of protein. So that would be a higher percentage because it's a, it's a lower calorie uh, platform. Then they did a four week uh, incremental increase of calories to get them back up to maintenance. And of course they were measuring RMR through uh, gas, um, you know, expiration and so forth. And so with metabolic cart testing, they, they noted, oh, by the way, um, this is what was interesting. So we talked about this a little bit last week and maybe even the, the week prior, but with men and women combined, but you will see here the plus or minus 400 calories, you know, just their RMR after dieting was about 1600 or 1700 calories. So resting metabolic rate. Uh, and then after, so, so, well, let me, let me back this up. Once they brought them up after the eight week intervention to kind of a, a maintenance level, they calculated it at 1690 calories. Then once they got to the 12 week mark and they considered, okay, any, any kind of metabolic recovery has taken place. Now we're going to baseline you out for the rest of the year. Then the RMR was almost 2,100 calories, but plus or minus 520. So they're not differentiating men versus women in that particular stat. So as I've always contended, the best research shows that the average basal metabolic rate for women is about 1,350 calories. Average for men is about 1,650. Um, but they calculated, you know, much higher here. You know, the, the, these particular people, their metabolic rates recovered, I would say pretty nicely because for an average of 2,100 calories, 
you know, including, and that's not just RMR, but that includes what would be their functional metabolic rate. Um, you know, that ended up being a pretty solid number. Uh, then they also use these, these fasting and post-eating surveys of hunger, fullness, desire to eat, and what's called prospective food consumption. Plasma levels, again, of ghrelin, the, uh, the peptide YY, glucagon-like peptide 1, uh, cholecystokinin, and insulin, all measured at the very beginning, plus at that 13-week transition mark, and then at one year. So they're getting a lot of survey material we'll go over. And then they're also going through, um, you know, the actual blood markers here. Uh, I'm going to answer Stacey's question here. Does the low calories, eight weeks diet create lower levels of hunger? That's what the study is all about. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. That's what they wanted to measure. So uh, let me continue on with the actual now results. Let me see here. Um, so after their, their intervention, after eight weeks, they lost 16% of their body weight, uh, which, which correlated to, let me see here. Um, well, I put minus, uh, so it's minus 18 kilograms plus or minus, so almost 40 pounds. So in eight weeks on a very low calorie diet, they lost that much, which, which you would, you would you know, consider pretty normal for that, that level of, of calorie intake. Um, they did note significant fasting hunger. And remember, as I talked about from our, our study last week, and, and even the week before looking at blood sugar, we look at hunger post meal, you know, exactly right after eating that transitional point where the stomach's empty, but blood sugar and, you know, blood lipids are higher and then also fasting. So now we know after the dust has settled, after, you know, blood sugar has kind of gone up postprandial, post meal, and, and then is coming back down, then how do you feel after three, four, five, six hours or so, you know, of fasting? So once they had gone through the eight weeks of fast or not fasting, but the very low calorie diet, and they had continued on for that four weeks of uh, just baselining back up to maintenance, there were still reports of 38% increases in hunger. And even at the end of one year, a 22% increase in reports of hunger. Now, remember, they put these people on a, cal on a, on a particular intervention for the eight weeks for the transition to maintenance, and then for the full year. So this particular study showed even at the end of a year, these subjects were dealing with some hunger. Last week, when they were allowed to eat ad libitum, they could just eat whatever they want, even though they gave them support. They said, if you guys want support, you can come talk to us. Uh, the, the recidivism wasn't that high, but still, I believe it was like about a third. I think, I think the, I think people had lost about 38 or so pounds as well in that intervention. And then they had, had gained back about 13 to 14 on average. So they had not gained it all back, but they'd get gained some, which again, just statistically as an average, that means that there was a calorie surplus over that year, even, even if slight, you know, there was a calorie surplus. And so those people said, I'm, you know, I didn't feel hungry. I, you know, if I gained any weight back, it sure wasn't because I was hungry. Even people who might have maintained, they said, we're doing fine. These people, their goal was to stay on a pretty steady diet, and they still reported a decent amount of hunger toward the end, though it did decrease. I mean, almost by half from 38% to 22%. Uh, here's an interesting little correlate to that. They actually reported increased postprandial fullness after the intervention. So I, I think that'll make sense to you that, you know, you know how everybody says when you go on a diet, your quote, stomach shrinks. Uh, it's not so much, although it may, you know, that the actual organ gets a little tighter. I mean, if you've ever seen a stomach, it's just a very thickly walled, you know, muscle and so forth. So I, I don't think necessarily your stomach shrinks. I think you just get used to a certain level of those baroreceptors and, and how much expansion there is when you're full and distended versus not your tolerance and your perception of that changes. 
but your stomach is not this thing that gets like super, super small and tight and then expands, you know, like a balloon. It's, it's a very, very muscular organ. Um, but again, that perception of fullness really increased 10% at the at week 13 and then still up 6% by the end of the year. Here's, here's what that means in real life. I was just telling a client of mine that this week, um, you know, for my competitive career as a bodybuilder, I spent almost 20 years either dieting for a contest or eating up into an off season, dieting for a contest, eating up and maintaining. I mean, it was, it was my job to gain and lose weight for almost 20 years. When I retired, I spent 10 years just right, uh, just right at my metabolic set point. I stayed at about 155 pounds for a decade. And, you know, here I am about five or six years after that. When I was competing and in off seasons, when I could eat what I want, it was nothing for me to eat six, eight, 10 slices of pizza. If it's like a Domino's pizza, that's just what it took to even feel like I was full. Um, now, after 15 years of not gaining weight like that, like after a weight loss and then regain, now I'll have one slice of pizza and I'll typically be considering, am I full or do I want a second slice? And you know, most times I'll have a second, but I'll, I can't eat more than that. And that's what that postprandial food consumption or, or pers perspective of that food consumption is. Uh, you know, how full do I feel? How much food do I think I need to eat at this meal? So these people in this study, after 13 weeks and a year, they reported hunger was higher. And yet my sense of fullness is also higher. Like, I don't feel like I can eat that much. That's an interesting little teeter-totter correlation. Um, now, some of the things that we talked about uh, last week, uh, all of the blood products, all, all the hormones were almost identical. You, you see uh, increases in things like ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. So uh, because, because your body is in a calorie deficit or in a calorie maintenance position to be in a calorie maintenance position means that you do have calorie positive times because you're eating a meal, but then to be in a neutral position, that means you're in a calorie negative position at some points of the day. Now, remember what it's like for those of you who are in a state of perpetual weight gain. If I had just finished a bodybuilding contest prep phase, and now I'm going to go through the next four or five months in a calorie surplus to, to eat back up to a level, you know, that I want, whether it's moderate or not, you know, that's, that's almost a constant calorie surplus. But if I'm eating at maintenance, that means meals are high in between meals, there has to be some kind of a lowness. And so this is, this is going to come back up later as we look at, at the discussion and the conclusions. Um, but I'm not going to get too much into the hormone levels because that's what last week was all about. You know, you can go back and review that one if you want. Uh, things were almost identical here. But but here, here's here's what was interesting. They these people who had lost 16% of their body weight at the end of that year, they had maintained 15%. So uh, you know, they had had initially lost 18 kilograms by the end of a full year, they were still down 16 that's success. I mean, that's big time success, plus or minus a kilogram. You've gone for a full year after losing almost 40 pounds and you've kept off 38. You, you get a blue ribbon from me. Um, but this is that, this is that interesting little teeter totter that I mentioned. If, if the drive to eat more in the fasting state, because that's when you're in that calorie deficit, if you're eating for maintenance, you know, after meals, you should feel good if you can make it past that initial gastric emptying. If you make it first that past that first wave of hunger pang and you did not, you know, succumb to that, but you allowed yourself to use your blood sugar products and blood lipids and so forth, then at some point in the not the postprandial or post-feeding time, but in the fasting time, that's when they would they would actually say they were hungrier completely opposite from last week's study. 
Last week's study, they concluded it was all about controlling that post-meal food intake. It was about the push away from the table reflex. If we can just get people to stop eating when they're full, then the game is won. These people, because they, these subjects, because they were on a controlled diet, they had no choice. They, they were, you know, they only got so much food per meal. And then, you know, they just reported, yeah, in between meals, their hunger was actually increased up to 22% by the end of the year. Then they had recalled it retrospectively, you know, prior to this intervention. So I hope, hope you guys are kind of seeing some, some things come together here. Um, because ghrelin, the hunger hormone, was still substantially increased at week 13. Of course, when you're on a very low calorie diet, you're going to see those hormones. Insulin's gonna be way, way down because you don't have all that food stimulating a storage response. And insulin stayed down by up to 50%. Those, those ishes, 50-ish and 30-ish, those are my, uh, that's, that's not their technical, um, I, I was grabbing this from their tables but it was substantial. Like when you would see something like insulin levels at, at let's say, you know, a thousand, even a year later, the, the average, almost like checking your A1C was down to 400 or 500, but that's a good thing. You know, we, we correlate increased insulin to satiety because if you got high, high insulin levels, that means you're eating a lot of food. And so to have more stable regulated insulin levels is a good thing Yet that also means you're probably going to feel some extra hunger because you're simply allowing blood clearing. You guys, you guys may uh, see in, in the supplement marketing, everybody's selling now at glucose disposal agents. Um, and these are, you know, some vitamin Bs and some chromium and some things like that that are supposed to help with blood sugar regulation and hunger. Some of them work. You know, I, I've taken some and sometimes I, I feel like somebody really hit a home run with, with whatever they have in there. Um, not well regulated, of course, but, but, but glucose disposal, lipid disposal through the bloodstream, you know, that's what we want. We actually want to feel empty. We want our blood sugar levels and blood lipid levels to be lower because that's the state at which we will start harvesting body fat is energy. So, uh, as we talked about last week as well, the, the, the longer, you know, acting down, down the chain and the GI system, uh, peptides, uh, the, the P, uh, or the peptide YY and the CCK, you know, those, those were still reduced at 13 weeks, but then they were back up at a year. So kind of with maintenance, you know, those came back up. Those are, those are more the, the chronic look at overall, uh, hunger and blood sugar and blood product, uh, management there, but the acute ones, things like insulin, glucagon, uh, glucagon-like, uh, peptide, ghrelin, uh, even leptin, which wasn't really looked at this week, but it was last week. Um, what I want, what I want you to, you guys probably already read this, but no significant correlation, direct quote from the study, no significant correlation was found between changes in subjective appetite feelings and changes in the plasma concentrations of appetite related hormones at any time, week 13 or one year. What that means is when food went down, ghrelin went up, insulin went down. And then when we brought, brought food back up to maintenance levels, insulin went up a little bit, ghrelin went down a little bit, but it was correlated perfectly with what you would think. It was the food intake level. And then with maintenance, you know, because these subjects had a high BMI to start 37, now they'd lost 40 pounds and were maintaining that you still saw insulin down and ghrelin up a little bit, but their hunger being up, they would say statistically using the SPSS software, it, it correlated so perfectly that you would say there's, there's no correlation. In other words, what was happening with these hormones and with the hunger was exactly what you should expect with the food level. In other words, it wasn't like this one change in this hormone was really driving hunger. And this is a critical, critical point because after all three of these studies we've looked at together, and I, and I tried to look at it as three different spokes of the same wheel, appetite has nothing to do with these hormones in a way that we can manipulate. You can't say, well, then I'll just eat this way 
and I'll fix it. If I just eat these kinds of carbs or this kind of thing, I can impact the hormone levels over here, you know, increase this, decrease this, and that'll fix it. I'll never feel hungry again. Uh, those things are all just perfectly commensurate to the amount of food you are consuming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that in a discussion. I know you guys are going to come up with some really good questions that we can, we can pick apart, but let me, let me get us uh, to kind of the, the part that, that correlates with last week. If you remember last, last week, weight regain between six and 24 months was about 13 pounds, which was moderate, but it was also correlated positively with that glucagon-like peptide. So people were hungrier, you know, that glucagon-like peptide was higher. And so, you know, because they had lost that weight and remember the very premise of this study, they said, we know in literature, people who lose weight, they've gone through an active intentional weight loss. They are hungrier at the end. That's why we have recidivism. That's why it's so difficult for people to come out of a dieting phase whether they've lost 20 pounds, 50 pounds, or 100 pounds, and keep it off. It's excruciatingly difficult because we have these biological drives to eat, to, to get our weight back up. And again, I don't want to anthropomorphize our bodies and say that our body is, quote, telling us to eat. It's just a response from being in that calorie deficit and through these evolutionary mechanisms, your body is, is trying to get back to a positive energy balance. So the fact that this particular study group had a longer term intervention, even with a very low calorie diet, which, which was brutal, they then did a four week intervention to get them back up to maintenance. Then they took them up even higher as their resting metabolic rates recovered. Then they took them up to a true maintenance and monitored that for a full year. So these people had a true long-term intervention. And, and that is a game changer. That's critically important because somebody who just loses a bunch of weight and then they don't have that support, particularly the, the high accountability of a study, you know, I think that's a huge deficit. I think, I think you know, people do better with this kind of, of intervention where there's long-term support. Um, so hunger not being reported by most during that first you know, group last year because they were actually regaining some weight. They were eating upward. Their, their, their low ghrelin levels were, were promoting some extra eating, which they were doing. And so they reported the, or they did not report hunger while this new group did. So let me read this before you guys jump in and start reading it. I want to read this together. Putting all three research reviews side by side, the three that we've done the last three weeks, if you regain weight, fasting hunger won't be an issue like that first group. They reported hunger was an issue because they were actually gaining weight. But those postprandial feelings of emptiness, like we talked about in the first week, need to be addressed. We need to be able to say, this is the right size meal. I don't care how I feel. Pushing away from the table. As soon as that gets fully digested and secreted into the small intestine and I get those mechanical feelings of my hunger, my, my hunger coming back, I'm not going to eat like that has to be addressed. But if weight is maintained, it, it, like in this study, you have to expect hunger. You have to you have to understand hunger is normal, but also you should expect that as this group did when you're maintaining your weight and your body is used to that, that maintenance amount of food, instead of a gaining amount, you'll also have the advantage of feeling extra fullness at, at the ends of those meals. If you're managing your, you know, speed of consumption and so forth uh, appropriately. So weight loss maintenance is indeed a matter of cognitively assessing the need, the blood sugar we talked about in the first study and then managing hunger, just knowing it's always going to be there. And, and I want to say, let me, let me read what these guys said. Uh, I'm going to read right from the quote. Our findings have, have some important practical implications. Patients with obesity who have lost and let me get this pulled up a little bit um, and maintain significant amounts of weight via dieting and benefit in terms of metabolic and overall health markers should expect a sustained increase in hunger feelings in the fasting state and be prepared for those feelings to occur. 
This increased drive to eat and fasting may impact food selection, eating rate, and total energy intake, despite increased postprandial fullness, and thus lead to a positive energy balance in the increased risk of weight gain. So after all three of these studies together, this is almost one of these moments that I, I feel like I'm going to let everybody down. We didn't find any secrets. It's just biology. If you want to be lean and healthy, there's a price. The price is you're going to be hungry between meals. You're going to feel great after a meal. You know, you eat that meal, you know, th this morning, my, you know, my, my first meal of the morning, you guys, you guys always talk about my food and what I eat. You know, you get that oatmeal, the protein powder, the fruit. It's like, oh, I feel so good. That was like eating candy for breakfast. I feel so great. And then all of a sudden three or four hours go by and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm looking at the clock. I don't want to eat for another 30 minutes. Can I go 60 minutes? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Okay. It's time to eat. I go get my rice, my peas or my broccoli, my, my ground turkey breast or my ground beef and my, my yummy barbecue sauce. And I eat that. And it's like, oh, I feel so good now. I had this great, nice meal. feel awesome. feel great for two or three hours. And then guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get hungry. I'm going to get hungry. And I have to have a plan for that. I have to deal with that. And people who have an abundance of food and options as we do in the world today, Remember, historians and anthropologists have said that this is the first time in human history that more people are dying from eating too much than eating too little. You know, we're killing ourselves with with overeating versus starving to death. You know, it's it's a difficult thing for a biological organism to deal with the fact that throughout our entire existence, these evolutionary drives have been to eat whatever we can when we can just to survive and now all of a sudden in a hundred year span, we're dropped in a situation where we all have too much food and we're expected to all of a sudden cognitively, emotionally override all of those physical impulses that are hormonally driven. And the conclusion of all of this research is deal with it. Like it's going to be there. These hormones aren't going to change. They're always going to correlate exactly with overfeeding or underfeeding. And in a calorie deficit, you have the especially difficult task of being in that calorie deficit. And, and that's brutal. And your body's going to fight you all the way through. And then when you, when you psychologically are at that finish line and you can now eat more, that's when everything in you physically wants to catch back up, you know, for those months and weeks of calorie deficit. And that's why this kind of a longer term stair-stepping intervention must be there. It's, it's absolutely critical. So let me, uh, let me unshare here, get you guys back up. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll lead with just a, another personal thought in transition. You know, again, when I, when I was dieting for contests and I would come off those contests, whether it was with a, a really high sense of control or not, you know, those biological feelings were real. And I know people like Andrew Hughes and Kevin Brunacini here who have lost personally a substantial amount of body fat, each of them over hundred pounds and have maintained that Daniel DeSalvo has lost over 50 pounds in the last couple of years and has kept that off. I'm guessing none of you guys would want to go back. Like the amount of work and the feelings it took to transition, like you guys successfully, especially Andrew and Kevin, you successfully hit that goal. And then more importantly, you've maintained that now for years. I'm just guessing if I could say, would you like to do that again? Just, just to make sure you can do it, maybe show everybody you know, it, it can be done. Like let's, let's add 120, 140 pounds and, and roll through those steps again. I'm, I'm guessing you've stayed where you are for the reason that no, that was painfully difficult. So even though you did it and it completely changed the life of, of you and probably generations of your family to come, um, you know, there is a price that you paid. And even to this day, you pay it in the cognitive approach to managing your nutrition. You have to pay attention to those interoceptive cues and you have to maintain a level of objectivity and assessment, even if it's very intuitive at this point, even if it's, you know, you're not tracking macros and so forth, you, you still have this level of awareness. 
And, and I'm going to, I'm going to pitch it over to you guys. I would love for all three of you to comment, but one last thing that I told a client this week who has lost, you know, she has lost more than hundred pounds. She's on her way to losing another 50 or 60, and then she'll be at her goal. And so when we're chatting, sometimes there's this, this real curiosity, like, how do you do it? Like, like, you know, Joe, since you don't, you know, you, you're, you're not at a place, you're, you're just doing this for, you know, your life now. It's not like you have an external goal driving you, but like, like, you know, how can you not track macros? Dan, you asked this in the nutrition coaching global mastermind this week. What if we just want to track macros forever? What, you know, do we have to be tied to that? Is, is that part of that self-accountability? And I said, no, I haven't tracked macros. You know, I mean, once in a while, I'll kind of do it for a, a few days or a week to calibrate myself, make sure I'm really true to, to what I think I'm eating. But other than that, I haven't tracked macros in about 15 years. But guess what? When I say I eat two thirds of a cup of oatmeal in the morning and I measure a quarter of a cup of blueberries and I measure a half a tablespoon of flaxseed oil and I measure a scoop of protein powder, guess what I'm doing? I'm tracking my freaking macros because I know what's in that food. I know exactly how many grams of carbs, protein, and fat are in there. So I don't have to see the numbers on paper. I don't have to put them in an app. I'm just self-regulating through the knowledge that I've already gained. I learned that language. I don't have to, I don't have to stay, you know, in class learning that language. I've learned it once and now it's always there. I, I just have to stick to it. So um Andrew, Kevin, Dan, one of you guys, if, if you would, you know, comment on, on just what that's like for you. Go ahead, Andrew, to, to, to be on the other side and, and, and the kind of price you pay now. I think uh, a quick way to put it, and I, I use this internally, but also when I talk to a client, you know, it's, I think it comes down to the fact that you have to accept from early on in the process that in tracking or understanding the macros, it's an educational process. And if you're doing it and you're doing it properly, it, you're constantly increasing your nutritional literacy. And that, and that stuff can't be unseen. So to your exact point, uh, if I want to eat a certain amount of protein across the course of the day, I know what needs to be in a certain number of meals. I don't have to track it. And I can feel confident that I know it's there because I have done it enough times that it's just ingrained. It's knowledge that I now have. And uh, I mean, I think that's really what it boils down to, to for me personally, as well as other people that I talk to, is you just get into a groove. And the longer you're in that groove, the deeper it gets and the easier it is to stay there. Hmm. And you had mentioned, Andrew, if I could keep you on for a second. Over the holidays, you decided, yeah, I'm going to eat a little bit. I, I want to just, just relax and be with my family and indulge a little bit. And now it's like, okay, here's the few pounds I gained. And I'm just going to get back into that groove. Like there was no stress, no worry. You weren't biting your fingernails thinking, oh my gosh, I, you know, what if I gained, you know, well, well, five pounds turn into 50. You know, you, you trusted that you had that knowledge and yet you still allowed yourself to relax. Yeah, I mean... I, I can see how each year that passes since I had my initial weight loss, that that, um, that feeling of, I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily that I had anxiety, but just that kind of uneasiness with the idea of putting anything back on, um, it just became less and less, just a duller and duller emotional <clears throat> reaction uh, to the potential of, of gaining weight. And also, I understand very objectively the process that it takes to, if I wanted to get some body fat off, I understand what that is. And, and I know that it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be that difficult. Uh, you don't have to make it that difficult. You can cater it to your own self. That's true for every person. So again, I think it just goes back to what you're saying, that kind of time is that key element like as time passes the the chemical like reactions seem to dull the emotional reactions seem to dull and it just is easier and easier yeah well said and and just for everybody else's sake after andrew lost 135 pounds he also got interested in just lifting weights more as a you know 
as a bodybuilder, whether he competes again or not, like he, he loves to train, he's in the gym. So there's also that calorie expenditure and that ease of thought that, yeah, you know, if I, if I gain 10 or 15 pounds, maybe that's intentional with my training goals. And then I'll, I'll let that kind of fall back off a little bit, but you know, it's not this, as you said, anxiety laden experience of, oh my gosh, if I gain any weight, I got to diet really hard. It's just, it's a, it's an easier process because those, those ripples are, are very low and, and far apart now. I think it's, I have to say this too. This goes right into what you're saying. I think, and I tell other people this all the time, that part of the sustainability is critically tied to a willingness to make physical um, activity part of your life. Because it also means that anytime that I gain weight, if I am giving a good effort uh, in whatever that physical pursuit is, I actually know that I'm potentially getting a, a benefit, a, a significant benefit from it for my body composition as well. So it's just one more way to frame in your mind um, that you don't have to make it such a terrible, awful, bad thing. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, b- before you jump in, Dan, Kevin, um, I-, I know you speak a lot to our group, but just you know, the fact that you've also had a very similar experience uh, a question maybe a little bit differently asked than I would usually ask of you, you know, do you feel pressure? Like, do you feel like external pressure to stay lean? I, I know you're very seemingly relaxed with your food intake and, and you, you know, here's, here's the amount of good baseline food, high quality food I have. And here's what I like to indulge with. But are, are you also just now that you're this far into the process, just pretty, pretty chill and in that groove? Yeah, without a doubt, uh, I, I'd be lying to say that it's not an undertone to some degree just for that credibility value of mine. Um, but it also does piss me off when I'm getting groceries and people who either see what I'm wearing or who know me to begin with see and they analyze my foods and they will criticize. And that just really triggers me quickly just to you know, they should know me better than that for one, but just to criticize regardless, just, you know, 10 years ago, that would have sent me into, you know, into a downward spiral, just, uh, and just, I guess, self-consciousness. But um, I think there's that, it's more pressure from others who, how they perceive me and what I should be doing more so than what I have of myself, but it's definitely pretty anticlimactic on my end. Um yeah, that's just the rite of passage from 15 years. What What about initially compared to now? Like, like, would you say that you were walking on thin ice back then and you feel kind of lucky you got out or, or what did you do to just make sure you would, you would get to this stage? It was definitely a tiered process. Like, like any big change like this. Um, and I yo-yoed. So uh, it's anytime I did regress was because of general holiday seasons and just losing the objectivity for me, at least, you know, the training that comes and goes, I don't care about that, but the nutrition is far more motivating and impactful to me for my brain. So to, um, to lose sight of the objectivity and the self-monitoring, that's when things would always crumble and it more, you know, to look at it from a more philosophical perspective, Anytime I focus too much on the result versus the process and the pursuits, and that's very, you know, trite to say that because it's we all propagate that with clients. But anytime I lost sight of that, that's when I would just look for that quick fix or just just ultimately lose track of what was most important and view it from a sustainable perspective and holistic, graceful way. And once I finally just with the help of my masters and seeing things contextually and analytically and just not absolutes that helped to understand my perspective of it's, it's going to take time. Stop taking that shortcut or thinking it's that's, it is that simple, but stop thinking it's going to be from one thing that I'm missing and just make it a process and focus on the big, big thing from a daily perspective. And those little changes over time is what adds up. Yeah. And two things that I'll, I'll wrap up your segment with, if I can, um, 
you know, you talked about the objectivity and, and if you, if you look at the national weight control registry and all their research, of, of course, monitoring is a huge part of sustainable weight loss. Anybody who has ever maintained their weight loss and, and I get on the scale every day. I mean, whether I'm actively trying to lose weight maintain or do anything else, if, if, if I'm at home, I have stepped on my scale every morning, my entire life. Um, I don't, it doesn't, th- it doesn't make my day great or bad. It actually does make it great. If it's going the direction I want, I feel good about it. But if it's a little high or if it's, you know, if it's not going where I want, it doesn't ruin my day. It's just, that's just another data point on the trend line. I'm staying objective. And that's what allows me to know how I need to change my food intake. There's not a huge emotional tie to it. It's just information. But one of the things that you said there, which at at the end of your one year where you had lost your weight and then maybe had maintained that successfully for a year and now 10, 12, 15 years later, the point of this study is your ghrelin levels don't change. They don't all of a sudden give you a break and say, oh, now that Kevin's made it this far down the road, we're going to we're going to chill out and we're going to make sure he never feels any hunger again. He won. No, you still feel the same hunger, at, you know, today as you did 10 years ago, as you did 15 years ago, based on your food intake level. And so that's, you know, you've just simply learned you and Andrew to manage that appropriately, more objectively. And to answer your question, you put in the chat box, Stacey, you know, the types of carbs, you know, okay, calorie intake, hunger, hormones, all that. What if you eat sugar, low, high glycemic foods versus low? And, and it doesn't matter that much. It's all about quantity first. If I have 20 grams of carbs from a sugary source or a starchy source or a fiber source, it's still the same amount of calories. That's going to affect your leptin, your ghrelin, your insulin, your glucagon levels about the same. And yes, of course, health values and vitamins, minerals, that kind of thing and fiber matter. But at the same time, it's always quantity first. And so that's why you can have those little indulgences and it's okay, you know? So, oh, that's not what you're asking. Okay, what are you asking, Stacey? You can unmute and just ask if you like. Do they impact cravings? Um, Not really. I mean, again, if you're in a very controlled, well, again, cravings, depending on what you want to call a craving, it's not going to affect these hormones that drive hunger your palate, you know, that's a, that's another area of study, mouthfeel, palatability, palate, you know, sensitivity. So yes, if you're eating sugar, you may want to keep eating. It's like, you know, Lay's potato chips. I bet you can't eat just one because of the sodium. Um, So yes, that definitely has an impact on just your, your almost hypothalamic, you know, just, just drive for taste. Um, so absolutely. Dan, were you going to jump in? I know I dragged you to this conversation a little bit. Yeah, I just got something real quick. The big aha for me is to understand from an evolutionary point of view, when your stomach is empty, those first signals hundreds of years ago was, hey, you better start looking for food because it's going to take you a while to get it. Now, uh, we don't have that challenge. You just turn around and grab it. Uh, so <laughs> It made it so much easier uh, for me. And uh, just to put it in context, uh, I'm still, you know, a competitive bodybuilder. And, you know, I got some pretty lofty goals at next year at 65, you know, to win uh, a world championship. Uh, So my motivation is uh, on a daily basis still really strong because I've got that, you know, 18 month goal ahead of me. So I admire, you know, Dr. Kevin and Andrew because, you know, they, they don't have that goal so it's more of a uh, day-to-day lifestyle. I want to, you know, respect myself, my body, and my health. I think I've got it a little easier because of that, you know, that bodybuilding goal. Uh, but the real key for me was to understand those first pangs uh, are just an evolutionary um, uh, control switch, uh, which made it a lot easier to, uh, to deal with that hunger. And, you know, still get it today. But I realize, hey, that doesn't mean that your uh, blood sugar level is low and you need food. It just means that uh, survival, you know, is kicking in. Uh, and, uh, you know, with today's modern civilization, you don't need to eat. You really don't need it at that moment. You, you reminded me of something. I, I wanted to make a post about this a few weeks ago and I forgot. I'm reading this, this classic book, Pulitzer Prize winning book by an African-American author who grew up you know, in the 
you know, post emancipation days, but still when, when the Jim Crow South was, you know, completely oppressive to blacks. So it, the name of his book is called black boy. And he's writing this memoir later on as, as an author about what it was like growing up, you know, when he was three years old, five years old, 10 years old, and his descriptions of physical hunger, like what it's like to be woken up night after night, hour after hour, because you feel like you're dying. And, and as a little boy walking to school to see your peripheral vision, just going black because your blood sugar is getting so low. And, you know, like you, like you, even at that age, you just think, you know, am I starving to death? And all your mom can do is give you like a glass of warm tea to try and fill up your stomach, you know, cause that's all you've got in the house. And so for, for what you're describing in terms of just those drives to eat, like that's what we contend with, even if we're not in straits that dire, uh, like you said, we can turn around and grab whatever we want out of the pantry, Dan, mm-hmm. still those physical sensations are there and that's what drive us. And that's why, we, you know, it's, it's a matter of totally being on guard. And like these researchers said in their discussion, this is not going to go away. And so for somebody to to be successful, you have to develop strategies to deal with just those daily meal planning, hunger cues. And as, as all three of you guys said, just not let it freak you out. It's just normal. I, I can interoceptively assess what's happening in my body. I'm good. I'm not dying. Plenty of food options. My next meal's in the fridge, just waiting for me. I can wait 30 minutes. But in then, as Andrew said so perfectly, it just just gets dollar and dollar and dollar, and you become just you know more able cognitively to manage it. All right, any other uh, thoughts or questions? I, I saw um, you know some people coming on and off screen. Any any anything as we maybe close out this? I, I may surprise you guys with a part four next week, but I'll I'll see if there's anything I think can add to the conversation, then I'll do that. But if not, we'll move on to another topic next week. One really quick question. Sure. Uh, obviously, the research that you looked at and talked about today was an intervention that was a full year. Um, and then I guess a full year after of, of monitoring. Have you seen uh, in pairing research any correlation between time spent in a deficit, losing weight, et cetera, with the time that kind of the after effects seem to uh, be an issue for people? You know, it's both of these particular studies this week was or was a full year intervention. The study I looked at last week's was a full year, but then they did a second year of at least survey. So you can see how they were after that second year. Those are beastie studies because most studies are like six or eight weeks, especially if they're inpatient studies where you got to lock these people up. Uh, But what we've seen so far is that kind of like this particular study at the end of a month, you know, resting metabolic rate has recovered in a study we looked at last year, even after, you know, 30 or 35 women also with very high BMIs had lost, you know, an average of about 45 pounds their resting metabolic rates fell 6% in the first 10 days of the diet. Five months later, after losing 45 pounds, 10 days after coming back up to maintenance levels of food, their metabolic rates and their thyroid hormones came right back up that full 6% to a person. And so I think there are some lingering. And even if you look at this study where they said, you know, uh, ghrelin levels, you know, at the 13 week mark from, from eight weeks of very low calorie dieting to a month of recovery, then the, the Y peptide, the YY peptide, you know, that was also kind of suppressed, but then at the end of a year, that was perfectly back to normal. Those things like the ghrelin and insulin levels, not going back to normal are because the normal wasn't obese normal. That's not normal. That's an inflated normal. So they, they very quickly stabilized at what a biologically healthy normal should be, but any of those other trailing effects, you know, the research last week and this week showed it just didn't have a, it just no impact at all. And so I think truly 
you know, we, we're not looking at things like androgens. Like we don't know what their testosterone levels did, you know, after six months or a year or anything like that. But I, I think all of these hunger based and metabolic based hormones just show that if you're really controlling your way out of the diet, you know, a month is your span. That's the most acute, like that's the critical time you do it for two months and three months. Like that's just icing on the cake. And, and it's important. Like you said, you know, as Kevin said, year after year after year, it gets easier and easier. But I think most of that is psychological and habitual, you know, social. So I, I think truly you got that critical window of a month exiting out of a diet. And if you want to say six or eight weeks, if you really look at that metabolic building and reverse dieting type process, like definitely take your time and maybe call it eight to 12 weeks. But, you know, it's almost like being an ICU for a month is, is what the literature is really showing.